Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 247, the Stone by Stone LP, I Pass for Human. And this is Stone by Stone featuring Chris D, or with Chris D. So we always love getting into a record with Chris D. I'm just guessing, but I bet you Brent loves this record. And we've got a special guest. You know I do, Ryan, and we've got a special guest, Chris Haskett is on the show. Yeah, it is amazing. I I am a huge fan of Chris's work with Rollins Band, as you are, mm-hmm. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so very interesting to hear about his time in this band and a whole bunch of other projects that Chris has worked on over the years. I will say, though, I was quite shocked at how you conducted yourself during the interview. I thought you would gush a bit more than you did. About Rollins Band? Yeah, it's really hard not to. So you just didn't even touch it. Well, it's like there's only two ways to go. It's all or nothing. And, you know, we're not a show about Rollins Band. So, you know, it's like it's hard to to avoid the Chris Farley show thing. Yeah, yeah. Where you're just member when you were in Rollins Band and you made the end of silence. That was awesome. That was awesome. Like... (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was though. It did actually get me listening to that record again this week for the first time in a long time. And it, of course, was one of your Desert Island discs from a week ago. And uh, man, oh man, what a record. Yeah, I've always got Rollins Band going. But yeah, I've been binging this week too. And Chris's solo stuff too. And I mean, like, I don't know, like, I'm pretty sure I've said this on the, on the show before. And I'm sure this doesn't go over too well with some listeners, but I don't care. I I prefer Rollins Band over Black Flag myself. Mm. Yeah, well, I would say that I like all vocalists in Black Flag, mm-hmm. but the stuff I go back to is Henry Flag, yeah. like the on an album basis. And yeah, I probably have listened to way more Rollins Band than Black Flag in my life, yeah. for sure. Well, okay. Before we get in too much trouble by agreeing with each other on that point, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Sure. Ryan, as you know, I did some traveling recently. and I, Yeah, you were, you were like Uncle Traveling Matt from, uh, remember that show? No. Fraggle Rock? Okay, yeah, now I remember, yeah. 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 And I'm going to do some more here tomorrow, but uh, I'll tell you about the first leg of my tour. So, uh <laughs> What did you have on your rider? Yeah. <laughs> I, I watched a few great documentaries in my travels. Ah. Personality Crisis, One Night Only, the film about David Johansson mm. from Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi. It's different from a lot of music docs that go through like the artist's life and career in chronological order. It's built around this performance at Cafe Carlisle in New York, like a new performance that he did, uh, where, as David says from the stage when he when he starts the show, the concept is Buster Poindexter sings the David Johansson songbook. So it's kind of lounge versions of songs he wrote or co-wrote spanning his entire career. I'd say a good quarter of the show of the songs are from the Reunited Dolls era. Mm. Which is good, because those are great songs. Yeah, there's good stuff there. Yeah, some versions land, some don't. To be honest, by the end, the format was getting a little tiresome for me. Uh, The best parts are when he's telling stories from the stage. 
uh, often including some famous friends that were in the crowd at this show, like De- Debbie Harry. Um, it kind of jumps around his life and, and shows older clips and interviews from all eras. Uh, it's cool. Obviously, I'm a Dolls fan, both you know the original and reunion era. But those David Johansson albums from the early 80s are super underrated, in my opinion, and have some of the best songs he's ever written on them. I was wishing he would have performed the song Donna, for this show. Hmm. Uh, I think it would have, like it's one of his best songs and it would have translated well to the format, I thought. Either way, it's a long over, overdue portrayal of David as what he is, which is uh, more than just the front man of the New York Dolls, but a true artist. Yeah, more than Buster Poindexter. Yeah. Or the cab driver from Scrooge, yeah, hey? Yeah, or that, yeah. Hey? He, he does talk, touch on Buster Poindexter a little bit. Yeah, yeah. okay, well... I will say that I know you're a way, way bigger fan than I am. I, I kind of know the first two Dolls albums. I have, uh, actually, it's only in the last couple of years you turned me on to the solo Johansson records. It's very, very recent. Uh, I do have, I think, all of the Dolls records. I mostly know those first two, though. So um, I'm sure I'm going to learn way more than you did when I get a chance to watch that show. Yeah. Hey, speaking of iconic artists, I finally got to watch one of my most anticipated documentaries in quite some time, and that's the Mojo Manifesto, The Life and Times of Mojo Nixon, and Ah. it did not disappoint. Directed by Matt Eske, and he did a fantastic job. Extensive, current interview footage with Mojo and some of the other people that were in his band. Live performances, talk show appearances, kind of going back his, his whole career, Biafra's in it, of course. Mojo himself is an absolute force of nature. He is just so full-on and intense still yep. today. Yep. Every second of the film is just riveting. And and then there's the music. Like, he's written so many hilarious but pointed songs. You kind of forget until you see them all kind of laid out like that. The guy's a true original, and the doc definitely captures that. So where did you see that one? I haven't seen that. Is that, like, on a on the developer's website, you got to kind of buy a digital version. I bought it on iTunes. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen that show up on the zillions of other things I already subscribed to. So just wondering. Yeah. 20 bucks Canadian to buy it on iTunes worth every penny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if it's anything like his appearance on Renegade Roundtable. Yeah. It'll be amazing. It's like that. Yeah, exactly. And finally, Ryan, as you know, I went to the Punk Rock Museum when I was in Vegas, and it's pretty amazing. I was probably spamming you with pictures of things, and you were just going, whoa, whoa, the whole time. (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know. It's pretty cool to see some of that stuff in person. Yeah, lots of photos, flyers, other memorabilia, lots of famous instruments. I'd say a relatively small corner devoted to Black Flag and SST, considering the impact they had. Cool collection of solid-state transmitters, though. Yeah, that was neat. Yeah. Canada is well-represented, for sure. Uh, massive DOA photo of Joe and Joe and Randy Rampage uh, by Beth Davies. Takes up a whole wall. Uh, no means no, Rob's original Damn Dog P-Base. We were geeking out over that. Oh, God. Yeah. Hey? Yeah. S- single knob. Single knob P-Base. <laughs> Just been through the paces, man. 
What about, uh, not only was there that Black Flag SST corner, there was some, like Naomi was well represented too, right? Yep, all the photographers, but yeah, Naomi for sure gets her due and, and Alison Braun and people like that. SNFU has a little thing, um, personality crisis. There's one of Wimpy's bases from DOA. Yeah, awesome. Chicks Dig It. Chicks, Chicks Dig, dig it. it. Yep. Uh, one of D Boone's Fender Twins, Bill Stevenson's drum circa 80 to 90 that he used on like all the Descendants and Black Flag stuff from, from that era. With holes in the shells, hey? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a big section on zines. Um, it's curated by Fat Mike, so big section on no effects and fat records, which isn't really my thing, but... They recreated the tiny garage that Pennywise and others jammed in for many years, including the original carpet from their jam room, which was up on the walls. And it says on the little placard, it says, uh, also has the original smell because from the <laughs> yeah. car, and it definitely stinks. Like you can smell it. Um, oh. oh, it's not behind glass or anything. No, you well, you can't go into it, but you can like poke your head into it, you know? And then just breathe deeply. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen some speculation that uh, a museum is what Henry might be opening in Nashville with this big commercial property that he bought or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, there's definitely room in the market, I would say, for, for another one of these. Um, oh, Henry's is going to be completely different and on a different level, if you ask me. The type of, a, the type of stuff that he collected is different than what's there. Yeah. I, I'm still leaning towards he's um, opening a pressing plant, but I guess we'll see. That would be sweet, hey? Yeah. That's all that I have, Ryan, other than, you know, go to the Punk Rock Museum if, you, if you're anywhere around Vegas. Yeah, I've never been to Vegas. I mean, if there's ever an excuse to go, I guess now there is. I would just, if, you know, fly in, see the Punk Rock Museum and get the fuck back out of Vegas. That's what I would do. Yeah, did the rest pretty pretty much suck or what? Yeah, it's not for me. Just like what the the whole gambling nightlife. Yeah. Blah blah blah. Yeah. I, I thought I they turned I, it. In, I thought they turned it into like a family town now. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I missed Eggy Pop by one day, so I was a little bummed about that. Ooh, wow! Especially because this new tour with uh, Chad Smith and uh, Duff McKagan is getting great reviews. Yeah, I'm sure that that would be amazing, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I've got one spiel and I've been sitting on this one for a while and I'm just getting around to it now, but I wanted to just hip you to this label real quick called Hello Sir Records. Ever heard of Hello Sir Records? No. All right. So I'm surprised they haven't come up on the show before by me. And I'm surprised I didn't know much about them until now. And I'm not sure I know a ton about them even still, because there's really not that much out there, but Here's, here's a quick spiel about Hello Sir Records and a few bands that I'm digging big time. And there's more in the label to discover. From Athens, Georgia, started around 2004, still active, but seems to be only active with this band called Bit Brigade. Have you ever heard of Bit Brigade? No. I'm not surprised you haven't heard of them because they are a video game cover band. Oh, boy. And Yeah, and they do like whole albums like a whole album on Metroid or Zelda or Mega Man 2 or Ninja Gaiden. So, and that's really the releases that have been coming out on Hello Sir since 2013. But prior to that, um, they put out some bands 
that I discovered that caused me to look more deeply into Hello Sir. And uh, there are three I want to talk to you about. There are many others on the label, and I could go on and on for some of these bands, but I just want you to, uh, I want to make some official recommends for three bands off of this label for you. All right. First one is called So Many Dynamos. So Many Dynamos. Their Flashlights album from 2007, it was uh, or co-released by Hello Sir. The vinyl version came out on Hello Sir. The CD one came out on uh, like Scrocky Records, S-K-R-O-C-K-I Records, Scrocky Records. But I got, I found out about Hello Sir by someone posting about this Flashlights record, and I found my way to Hello Sir, the vinyl version, 2007. So many dynamos from St. Louis, Missouri, probably one of the better known bands on the label because their third record, The Loud Wars, came out in 2009 on Vagrant Records. But I'm just digging them. Um, mathy, dancey, indie, synths, some definite spaz rock going on there. They would definitely fit on a bill with like At the Drive-In and The Shins maybe. Okay. But totally digging so many dynamos. I haven't heard yet their first record from 2004 on Semaphore called When I Explode, but the two records, Flashlights and The Loud Wars, been totally digging them. So I got introed to Hello Sir via So Many Dynamos, and then I was checking out the rest of the bands, and here's another band I got hooked into, Tiger Bear Wolf. Tiger Bear Wolf, their self-titled record from 2005 from Greensboro, North Carolina, this is like indie post-hardcore. Kind of reminds me of that spectrosonic sound scene from the late 90s in Ottawa, Canada, weirdly, with bands like Blake, who turned into that other band, Rocket's Red Glare, or Three Penny Opera, 3PO, who kind of went on to form Mets. But uh, Tiger Bear Wolf has some serious kind of classic rock, garage rock chops with their really mathy post-rock vibe it just comes through in the coolest way their classic rock vibe though so a bit more of like a constantine's vibe at times just awesome though tiger bear wolf love this record and then finally the third band i want to hip you to um, not very good at pronouncing this name i think it's pronounced cinemechanica i think is how it's pronounced cinemechanica their 2006 record the martial arts just amazing, mathy, post-rock, post-hardcore, super technical, catchy, screamy, lots of tapping riffs in it, Brent. Lots of tapping. Would definitely fit on a bill, again, with like At The Drive-In, maybe even Mars Volta or Constantine's. Um, the Martial Arts record is my fave. It was actually remastered and re-released on Red Vinyl in 2017. Um, they released a 10-inch in 2008 called Rivals, which is just killer. And then 10 years later, 10 years after their first record in 2016, they put out a follow-up self-titled record on uh, Stiff Slack Records. It does not let up for a second, this second Cinemechanica record. It's just relentless. Yeah, there's no relent huh. in this record. It's just killer. Well, you had me so, at tapping, so... yeah. Tappy riffs, Brent. So, I don't know. Hello Sir Records, it's one of those labels that seems potentially regional. Maybe, you know, not many bands toured up through Canada 
in the early 2000s and, and late 2000s, I guess. Maybe that's why it's a late discovery for me, but there's a, a ton to dig into here. And, uh, and I mean, I've mentioned a few bands that they remind me of that are definitely in my wheelhouse at the drive-in, Mars Volta, Constantine's, even the Shins, some of these sounds. Um, definitely digging that. And of course, I mean, look, if you like video games and you want to hear a band cover the soundtrack to a video game, then check out Bit Brigade. Why not? Hey, have you heard the new Mars Volta yet? Is it out? I read a review of it. I'm not sure if it's out yet, though. I have. Which which one are you talking about? There's a brand new one. Oh, an even newer one? Yeah. Oh, I have not heard that one. No, it's out? I, I don't know if it's out. I just read a review of it. Sometimes the reviews are, you know, a month before, like, done off a promo copy oh, or whatever, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does it say? A return to form? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> are you even going to check it out? Nope. Not no, based I, on the review I read. Is that right, hey? Yeah. They, it is not a return to form. It's a and folk album. What? That's what the review kind of made it sound like. Hmm. I'll give it a try. I will. The review compared their last one to Prince. <laughs> well, I guess compared to their prior works, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they gave it a good review. They did, hey? This new one, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm willing to give anything that those guys do. Um Give, give it a try. There's lots of Omar, like, solo records that I can't get into. Yeah. I don't know. You probably love all the Omar no, solo records, some right? Some are good, some are not. Of yeah. the ones I've heard, there's so many of them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Have you heard, like, uh, some of the other kind of offshoots, like Anti-Mask? Have you heard that? Yep. Yeah, that one's decent, right? Yeah, it's been a while, to be honest with you, since I've checked any of that stuff out. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, there's definitely some early 2000s spaz rock vibes in some of these Hello Sir records. Um, and so if you are not going to be into a folk music version of the Mars Volta, yeah. get on it. I'll with get Hello Sir. that way. Get on some Hello Sir records releases, okay? Okay. All right, man. I can't wait to get into this Stone by Stone record. Let's do it. History lesson, part one. So, Brent, by my count, I think this is like our sixth record with Chris D, I think. I think um, so, yeah. I'll, I'll walk through them real quick, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I was just thinking to myself again, and it won't be our last, thank goodness, because I love every Chris D record that we get. Chris D is going to be one of those artists that are with us on the uh, the Mojack show for a long, long time, which is just amazing. Yep. Um, you know, some bands drop off really early. Uh, some bands will only come back for like comps or greatest hits type releases. We're going to get like uh, new juice from Christy for a while yet, which is amazing. We started off way back at episode 90 with the Divine Horseman record, Middle of the Night, where Chris was a guest. Awesome, awesome record and interview. And then followed by SST 91. Divine Horseman, Devil's River, where we had Julie Christensen on the show. Now, if you want to listen to two amazing interviews back-to-back, go to 90 and 91. Then we switched gears at SST 94 to The Flesh Eaters. We had The Greatest Hits, Destroyed by Fire. Then back at SST 140, The Divine Horseman, Snake Handler. And 176, Divine Horseman, Handful of Sand, where we had Peter Andrews on the show. 
And uh, now we're here with the stone by stone combo, kind of like a post divine horseman and pre reinvigoration of flesh eaters type of band. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate, Ryan, that um, they basically, it was a very short lived band stone by stone that more or less morphed into the reformed or reconstituted flesh eaters. Mm -hmm. And we'll be seeing them at least three more times on the show, including the the comeback double album. Here's a little thing I got from Chris that kind of tells us a little bit about this, this band. The I Pass for Human Stone by Stone album grew out of the absolute disaster my life had become at the end of 1987, start of 1988. Julie Christensen and I had broken up our marriage and our band, Divine Horseman, because she had cleaned up from heroin and I could not at the time. I ended up going on methadone until I got off it in 1993, then finally got completely clean in 1996. But to get back to 1989, I had pulled a band together from a couple of people who I had met through 12-step programs. Other members I knew as friends of friends. Originally, Stone by Stone was the late John Napier, a.k.a. Ethel Meatplow, mm-hmm. Chris Haskett, mostly known at the time for playing with Henry Rollins, and Dean Steele on bass and Danny Frankel on drums. I don't remember how we got together with engineer Biff Sanders, who was the engineer... We used his small studio. I believe it was a 16-track studio. I think John Napier had hooked us up. I was going back in a more flesh-eaters type direction with Stone by Stone, although Divine Horseman had started to get a bit more into electric rock style as well in the last year of 1987. Luckily, SST was still interested in putting out my music. Most of the songs were super stripped down of instrumentation in Stone by Stone. The record was released in 1989 and we were gigging around in the Los Angeles area only under the Stone by Stone name. Unfortunately, there was a real decline in audience numbers because nobody knew the band name at the time. One of our few times playing under the Stone by Stone name at Al's Bar, Nirvana opened for us, way before they were famous. This is something I did not remember at all, possibly because I often, during that time period, did not arrive at our gigs until right before we went on stage. Someone later pointed it out to me, showing me a flyer from the, from the gig. Anyhow, eventually we had the brilliant idea of changing the name back to the Flesh Eaters, and audience numbers improved because of that. Around that time, John Napier and Chris Haskett had to leave the band to further pursue their own musical endeavors. Wayne James, who had been one of our guitarists in Divine Horseman on the Devil's River and Middle of the Night records, replaced them. Thomas Morgan replaced Danny Frankel on drums, but was only in the band for a few months. We were already using the Flash Eaters name again when Ray Torres replaced Thomas on drums and Glenn Hayes replaced Dean Steele on bass. This was all happening in 1990, right before we recorded and released the double Flash Eaters album, Drag Strip Riot, on SST. So obviously, Ryan, I can't wait to get to a double Flesh Eaters record. We haven't really seen the Flesh Eaters on the show other than this Greatest Hits comp or whatever you want to call it that collects tracks from their their first four records. And we're going to be seeing another one of those as well. So, Yeah. Hey, so two questions for you. Did you know that John Napier was in Incest Cattle? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so cool connection there yep right and don't forget that water under the bridge cassette that came out incest cattle yep so here's my question for you then as the authority 
on this topic. Is this stone by stone record between Divine Horsemen and our reformed flesh eaters? Is this record kind of tipsy gypsy esque? Maybe a bit. A bit? A bit. Seems like it's a bit to me. It's more of a garage rock album, I would say. More garage for you? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I can I can spot a beret on the cover of this record. So <laughs> I don't know. Anyways. Okay, so I'll expand on the mus- musicians involved a little bit. Uh, so obviously the band for this project was Chris D on vocals, Danny Frankel on drums, Dean Steele on bass, Ethel Meatplow, a.k.a. John Napier on guitar, and Chris Haskett on guitar. Danny Frankel, I know we've talked about um, before, probably in connection with Urban Verbs. Yep. Um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this, but he had a 7-inch on Tom Grimley's and Devin Sarno's Win Records in 1995 under his own name that Kid Congo plays on, plays guitar on. Um, full, uh, also a full length from 97 on Win. Urban Verbs, we probably talked about them when Chris France of Talking Heads book came up. Uh, his brother, Roddy, was the singer in the Urban Verbs. And Danny Frankel was the drummer. He's one of these super in-demand session guys who's played with everyone from Katie Lang, John Cale, Marianne Faithful, She and Him. He's played with some other SST alum. He's on Watts Bullhog or Tugboat album. Uh, He's played with Josh Hayden in Spain. Uh, He's currently the drummer in Petrified Max Mm -hmm. with Vetus and John Rosewall. Probably, he's probably played with other SST artists also. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's the most recent and probably most frequent references we've had to Danny. Yep. Uh, John Napier, a.k.a. Ethel Meatplow, um, on guitar, which is Ethel Meatplow is also the name of the band he formed shortly after this record came out. Ethel Meatplow was kind of an industrial dance rock band with John on guitar, Carla Bazulich on vocals, who went on to form Geraldine Fibbers, among other projects. And the drummer for Ethel Meatplow was Harold Barefoot Sanders, who engineered this Stone by Stone record. More on him in a minute. John went on to tour with UK industrial group Nietzer Ebb. Uh, he also later fronted a short-lived band called Bussinator or Buccinator. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, which featured Danny Frankel on percussion, but also John Wall of Keith, Keith Morris's Midget Handjob on drums. Uh, Avery Smith, who was in this cool crossover band, The Brood, uh, and also played drums on the first Suicidal Tendencies record is on it. David Gomez of Left Insane and Euler is on this record. Uh, Evan Mack of Euler. So I just have to track down and hear this Buccinator record called The Great Painter Raphael from 1994. Have you ever heard of that? No. Yeah. Uh, John Napier also founded the short-lived mid-90s label Basura, which released, among other stuff, um, uh, the Kid Congo and Sally Norvell uh, project Congo Norvell. A Melt Cult, Cult's Burn or Bury record came out on, on John Napier's label. Uh, unfortunately, John had a long-standing drug problem and passed away in 2012. Not much known about Dean Steele, the bassist. Uh, looks like he briefly played in Ethel Meatplow. We talk about a, a bit about him in the interview here. Chris Haskett obviously needs no introduction. Full-on fret melter in the Rollins band, circa 87 to 97. 
playing on some of the greatest albums ever made with a band that I would argue by 1992 was, for a time, probably the greatest band on the planet. Hard to disagree with that. Yeah. We covered off some of the other releases that he plays on in the interview, so I won't get into 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 that too much, including the early DC punk band The Enzymes with David Byers. Um, if you want to hear that, someone has compiled some Enzymes material sourced from Henry's radio show, actually. I found on YouTube, so you can check that out. I'll briefly talk about the engineer as well, Biff Sanders, um, a.k.a. Harold Barefoot Sanders III. He was the drummer in Ethel Meat Plow, and previous to that, Four Way Cross, the L.A. post-punk band I mentioned a few weeks back. He later formed the band Polar Bear with Jane's Addiction bassist Eric Avery, he also ran Motive Studios in L.A. where this was recorded, along with records by Savage Republic, uh, the aforementioned Geraldine Fibbers, Chokebore recorded there, Ryan, 17 Pygmies, tons more. Uh, he- yeah, I saw I saw Chokebore there. I also saw Sandy Duncan's Eye. Do you know that record? Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw I was like, no way. Same studio. Yeah. Cool. Uh, he also had a short-lived label, Motive Communications. So lots of stuff to dig into in relation to this record, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was noticing, like, while digging into this record, there's just weird connections all over the place, like to Ace of Hearts Records when we get to History Lesson Part 2. Just yeah. wild. Yep. Let's throw it to Chris. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Chris Haskett. Chris, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay, uh, before we get into Stone by Stone, I want to go all the way back with you. You grew. Did you grow up? Did you grow up in Washington D.C.? Well, if I have, if I've if I've grown up, yes, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I was lucky enough to 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 be in D.C. and you know, yeah, around. So me, me, Henry Rollins and and Ian McKay and you know, Guy Pachoto and all those all we're all we're all contemporaries from D.C. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, that era, that vintage. Right, guitar was your first instrument. I'm still working on it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the first one. Okay. And the last one. <laughs> what was it about guitar? What was the, you know, what was the band um, that grabbed you? Oh, gosh. I, well, I, my bro, my older brother's five years older than me, and he was listening to, you know, so I grew up listening to his music, which was fortunately like, you know, Blind Faith and Cream and Jefferson Airplane and Jimi Hendrix and stuff. So I, and I inherited his records. And, you know, he being my older brother, everything he did was cool yep. and still cool. Um, and so, you know, and I was also, you know, kind of a geeky, nerdy, you know, misfit of a kid. So, you know, rather than try and figure out why I couldn't fit in with my peers, I was like, well, fuck it. <laughs> Rock and roll is way cooler. Um, and so, you know, everybody else was listening to Seals and Crofts and I was listening to Electric Ladyland. Um, so I think the guitar was kind of an escape um from you know it was kind of like it was a kind of way of, a way of sidestepping a lot of other uh you know just childhood ness you know and it's funny because i've actually asked a bunch of other you know contemporaries like you know i'm one day you know guys, guys and gals in other bands i'm like you know so when you when you're a kid you're, could you dance They're like hell no that's <laughs> why i play guitar yeah um so i think yeah so that's i kind of got into the guitar and just kind of it, for a long time, it was, it was kind of just all I had. So I kind of got better at it by default just because I wasn't doing anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I've heard Henry and Ian talk about 
his shitty politics aside, Ted Nugent, you know, like they were really into Ted Nugent. And I mean, yeah, like, Nugent was, I think I, I didn't, I didn't know them before punk rock. So, so I met Henry and Ian after the, you know, after, after the music scene started to happen a little bit, but I think there was a schism between them where like, I can't remember who liked who. I think Ian liked Nugent and Henry liked Van Halen. And uh-huh. there was the ongoing, or maybe it was Zeppelin. There was the ongoing debate as to like, which one was better. Uh, but you have to ask Henry Ian about that. But yes, I mean, look, again, it's, it's Nugent is one of those interesting ones. It's really weird because he's not stupid. Yeah. Right. He's he's a really really sharp guy, who somehow turned his sharpness toward incredibly stupid things. But he's a hell of a guitar. Oh player. yeah, the and tone. Those, those early, you know. But again, and it's funny because there there are, you know, it's, it's a bit like you know, Woody Allen or Roman Polanski or or whatever. You know, you kind of go. Gosh, I used to love that, and now I just can't, just can't do it. I mean, I can still watch some Woody Allen. I can still watch early Roman Polanski, but I just can't listen to Nugent anymore. Yeah, just gets to death, you know. But it's just you know yeah. the way it goes. Okay, so you went to the UK in like seventy six, seventy seven. Were you out of high school? I or? did. Oh yeah, my well, I went there for a year. Um, my parents are academics, and they took a sabbatical. Went back to where my dad was from in the north of England, and it just happened. And again, same thing happened. It was like, you know, there was there were the relatively normal kids, and then there were the the, the rock and roll kids, and I kind of gravitated to the rock and roll kids. And we you know you know we paid attention to the music press and what was going on way down south, and we were reading about this band, the Sex Pistols, yeah. and stuff. So you know, and it just happened. So I think God said the Queen came out like right after I left England, and. Um, uh, my friend in England was sending me the seven inches. I got the original, I got pretty bacon and, and all that stuff, but I was, it was the awareness, the consciousness of it. Well, that, pervaded. that's the, that's ground floor right there. 76, 77 yeah. in the UK. Yeah. I, but I was only 13, yeah. you know, 14. So I wasn't, um, but it, but it kind of set the tone for when I got back to America, because that was the beginning of, you know, uh, the kind of hardcore disco era. So like everybody else that I knew, well, I was surrounded by kids that were wearing these enormous pastel colored polyester shirts with enormous collars, <laughs> like frilled, you know, they're doing the hardcore Saturday night fever thing. And I was like, uh, no, nah, not so much. Um, and, um, and, you know, and again, because the scene was so small in Washington, and I think this is true in most places at that time, People, you know, that you people found each other. You yeah. spotted each other on the street, or you saw each other at a record store, and you go, "Oh, wow, he or she looks like they probably, you know, have a residence record, you know, or listen to the Clash or whatever, you know." And yeah, it was it was lucky, you know. It seems like a lot of those UK bands, like, um, you know, the that first generation of UK punk bands, were a huge mm-hmm. influence on the DC musicians that we yeah, all the but, people we talk about now. Yeah, well, there was there was a there was a mix. I mean, don't forget, you know, we gr- growing up for us the local you know, the Bad Brains were the local band, right? <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't just UK stuff, but there were a couple of records that that everybody had because they were also because they were cutouts, right? So like I think it was live at the Vortex or live at the Roxy. It was like a buck ninety nine, and it had you know, and again there was a, there was uh, Eater was another one, yeah, um, which was like again it was a cutout. It was two bucks. Um, and so there were certain records that everybody, you know, had, and we, and everybody made tapes and stuff. It was, it was huge, but in DC, we also, you know, we had, 
um, you know, when I was, the B-52s used to come up from Athens. The cramps used to come down from New York, you know, again, before they were big. Um, and, um, you know, God, who had the mad New York band? You used yep. to get a couple of used to the New York bands. So there was the, the, the English thing was, was huge. You know, like every band, every hardcore band in DC played Stepping Stone because of the Sex Pistols version. I don't think anybody ever heard the Monkees version. <laughs> um, and yeah, and One Two X You again, big part, but not so much because of the studio version, but I think because of the live at the Roxy version, right, which right. everybody had to like I said because it was a buck ninety nine. But yeah, I mean, we and and like I said, there was there was there was a lot of it, it was less codified back then. I mean, this is something that I really stress to people because like there's a kind of revisionist you know, alternative music history, which kind of has this, this direct line from like, you know, the New York Dolls and the Stooges and and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. And it's like, well, no, it's actually much more divergent than that. I mean, you know, in, yeah, a lot of the people that I would see at, 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 at like going to see The Damned, I would see a week later at a Sun Ra gig. Right. Right. There was this kind of, um, it was much more, the horizon was, you know, what do they call the Overton window was much, much broader than... It, it eventually funneled down toward this kind of um, very narrow definition of what punk or new wave was. But like I said, we used to get, my first band, we used to go see the art ensemble and then we would go see the bad brains. And then, you know, and, and it was just kind of, it was much more, it was a question of, of about, it was more about a, a question of musical freedom and not being constrained by the market. You know, so at that point you go see John Cale or you go see Anthony Braxton or you go see the art ensemble or you'd go see the Buzzcocks or whatever, you know, and it was, it was you'd see the same people at a lot of these gigs. Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot of that stuff, a lot of that mentality went away as like as hardcore came in. Yeah. It did. yeah. Well, again, I mean, it, it's a lot of these things as they as things get bigger, they get more. Uh, what um, what's the word hegemonous? Yeah. You know, because, uh, yeah, it, they it lose a lot of the, the other branches fall off. Yeah, it's just I think it's just the nature of, you know, again, look what happened to metal. The same thing, you know, and um, it just it becomes very uniform um, and it also becomes more uniform when it becomes more marketable. So as soon as, you know, I think it's it's either Lydon or, or Steve or, or Paul Cook or Steve Jones, whoever in the Sex Pistols movie goes, you know, talking about 77, he goes, well, the punks ruined it. <laughs> you know, as soon as it becomes something you can buy, so instead everybody everybody's buying the uniform. Right. They're buying the leather jacket that nobody could originally afford. They're buying the studded bracelet and the little pins. You know, and that makes it, yeah, um, yeah, more codified and and less diverse. You know. Okay, you mentioned your first band. Was that was your first oh, band? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've talked about David Byers on the show because he's he's come up oh, on some great. of these these yeah, HR yeah, episodes. HR, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. No, Byers is is a, is, a, is, a, is a David Byers was was a uh, really good guitar player and, and more so than he was an excellent musician. Yeah, um, he's a bit crazy, but I mean, in a lovely way, he was a good friend, and yet yeah, much under under you know, underknown. I mean, because in some ways it's it's a real shame because he just didn't his recorded output what the, the, what's what's available about him doesn't really speak to how much dynamism he brought to the scene. Um, not in even you know, whether he was in a band or whether he was playing or just being enthusiastic, he was a part of. He's a very dynamic um, part. That's a hard thing to quantify for people that didn't know him because there's not much tangible legacy. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I got 
again, speaking to what I was saying about about meeting people at these kind of other gigs, I got recruited. The Enzymes were already a band um, with, um, uh, among other, John Gibson was also, in, I think, Tony Perkins and the Psychotics and a number of other DC bands. Um, got, I met them at a Fred Frith gig. Wow. Right. So, you know, it was Fred Frith was doing a, a gig with a prepared guitars, you know, it must have been 14 or whatever. And, you know, people went because everybody, because Eno was huge. Like, we, everybody knew Brian Eno, at least every, you know, all 20 of us, by every, <laughs> what I mean by everybody. Yeah. Um, we're like, oh my God, Fred Frith played on a prayer. So, you know, people went to see Fred Frith partially because or a lot of the kids went because of the Eno record. So I'm there and they're there and they're kind of like, they didn't say, do you want to come jam? They said, would you like to be a guitar unit in the Enzymes? <laughs> I was like, sure, I'd love to be in a, <laughs> a guitar unit in the Enzymes. Um, so that's how I ended up with that. And again, that it's really interesting because like the kind of pre-hardcore version, because again, we, we kind of, the Bad Brains changed everything for everybody. Um, so all the bands kind of like saw the Bad Brains and were like, oh shit, we got to do that. But before, initially, um, the enzymes again. We we're listening. We were listening to a lot of Sun Ra um, and World Saxophone Quartet, and we're not jazz players or anything like that. But it was like it was that freedom, that kind of like um, massive tonal and, and timbral horizon of the freedom. We we're listening to a lot of beef art, you know, and listening to the Damned and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks. But but there were many 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 more flavors and diversities getting in there. I mean, originally we had it was we had. Um, the Enz Enzymes was originally guitar, guitar, bass, drums, saxophone, and um, really, really amazing guy called Lawrence Goodby who made who made his own oscillators and instruments. And we just again in that kind of Eno way would kind of add sound. And you know, and a lot of stuff was was very beef art yeah. rather than punk. Um, beef art, beef art is a uh, is a common connection with a lot of these sst artists for sure yeah yeah well again yeah i mean you know and just, again that that freedom and 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 um yeah the courage of it you know and just the joy that you know it's just certain that that was it that was one of the nice things about the enzymes it's kind of joy of just making this anarchic you know anarchic sound um and then after we went through various lineup changes and stuff you know then we kind of we kind of settled down on more like oh no we're going to play like you know punk you know yeah um but buyers but buyers was a really yeah it was a very good guitar player total um, shredder and and and, <laughs> and also it's kind of very you know, kind of led the way in a lot of ways i was very lucky to have those guys john gibson and, and dave buyers as kind of the not i mean we're contemporaries not mentors but i mean but they, they kind of set a good initial ground for my for me being in my first band any notable shows that you can recall with the enzymes like uh, yes absolutely <laughs> there's one show um at a place called scandals um in georgetown it was who was it? it was us i think it was ebenezer and the bludgeons i think from baltimore and us and maybe the psychotics played i can't remember but um yeah the place was very full it was a new bar it was very you know again it was very full very hot and some bouncers came in from um one of the local kind of redneck bars and we're forcing flyers on um on these teenage kids who you know they've been just like for like a wet t-shirt night or something so it's like they were just being aggro and there's being assholes um they walked through the crowd handing and they got into it with with um henry 
right? With with Rollins yeah. and in full sight of the bouncers at the at the of the gig we were at, they dragged him outside and there's two fully grown, probably Vietnam vet bouncers are in a fight with the then probably 17 or 18 year old Henry. And they've got him down on the corner. You know, he gave as good as he got, yeah. I have to say. And we, you know, and in the middle of the gig, you can hear, I've got a recording of it somewhere. You can hear buyers go, hey, hey, bring back Henry. <laughs> and the gig stopped. Everybody ran out and the guy, the bouncers took off. But I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was, that was a notable one. Um, and then the next day I went back and got my money. <laughs> you know, because the kids went back in, they broke all the windows and smashed up the bathroom. And, you know, it was like, right. Which didn't really help things, but, um, you know, yeah, still got paid. Um, yeah, I don't know. Denzel didn't play a huge number of shows. I wish we had more recordings of it. Do you think any no, of the recordings will ever come out? Um, well, actually, Ian has, um, we did two recording sessions, one with the original kind of beef arty enzymes, which, which I have multi-tracks of, um, and one of the later, more straight, hardcore, you know, not super fast, but it was, it was those are some good songs that I don't I don't know where the multi track for the second session is. Ian actually has mixed and has basically Ian's sitting on 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 an enzymes release. It's supposed to be a split release, I think, with us and Trenchmouth, which is another DC band, really great DC band that never put out a record. Um, and that's that's up to him. It's you know it's it's uh, I don't know he'll get around to it eventually, but when that comes out, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to take you know find what live enzyme stuff there is and then just put it up for free for people yeah. but i'll but i'll wait until until you know whatever else happens happens but oh, okay so then at yeah. some point you moved back to the uk why did you decide to move back um i finished because I, I i did two years of undergrad in the states and just was just screwing up and um going to college in england was much cheaper because because i'm also i'm a dual national and um you know, so I, just, I, moved, I transferred to, to Leeds and uh, finished my degree there. And then when I finished my degree, I was like, I was already in a, I was in a different band. I was in like a surf trash band is that was Beanie touring Tees? in Europe. I was like, huh? This is Surf and Dave and the Absent Legends? Yeah, Surf and Dave and then, and then the Beanie Tees or Absent Legends. It went through various names. Yeah. And, um, you know, there I could, I, I could get crappy jobs or just be on unemployment and be in a band and tour. Whereas, you know, what would I go going back to the States for? So I stayed. Um, I was like, well, I'll, take, you know, I'll, st I'll stick with the music thing for as long as it lasts. And then I'll go to grad school. <laughs> that was my plan. Yeah. Um, and so, but I was coming back to, to, to um, you know, the States where my family was and my friends were periodically. And um, I just happened to be in D.C. around the same time that Henry was in D.C. Um, when Black Flag broke up. And so, yeah, Henry and I had been in touch. They'd stayed at my house when they played in Leeds in 84. And we'd just been swapping tapes and, you know, ideas and stuff. And he was like, okay, screw it. Let's, you know, go, let's, let's make a record. I was like, okay. I was like, you know. So we found some musician, booked some studio time, booked a rehearsal, wrote some songs, made an album, you know. Um, Did you but that think... was why I moved back to the UK. Yeah, I was going to say, did you think like it was going to be a band at that point or was it just a project well, you were doing? I, well, I think at that point it was just a project. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, you know, because, yeah, I mean, the, again, the drummer, the drummer and I lived in England and, and Bernie Wandell, the bass player, and Henry lived in America. 
So that didn't seem very practical. Um, no, it was just a project. And, and it's funny, I was listening to that record not so long ago, and it's, 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 it's so heavily influenced by the birthday party, a lot of those songs. So I was like, I was so into, into Roland Howard's guitar playing, and still am. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's how it happened. So I did, you know, we, that's why the UK was, was where we also where we record Lifetimes. So I was still living there. There was, no, there was no reason for me to come back to America at that point. Yeah. Right, right. So that by the time you do Lifetime, is it the is the conversation like this is going to be a a band? We're going to do this band? Yeah, well, no. By then, by then it was already a band. I mean, because yeah. by then, what is you know Henry had found a label, which you know the first because the first record was on Texas Hotel, and he had found a label, and and Gone had broken up. I'd never seen Gone, but I knew about them. And you know, I knew that 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 uh, Andrew and Sim were a formidable rhythm section. And Henry was like, "Hey, you know the guys from Gone." Well, I was like, "Okay, you know." And he we lined up he lined up dates. Or rather, actually, I think it was Rand, Randy Ellis, who's another kind of unsung hero of the music scene, who ran booked City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey. Right. Um, booked our shows, bought a van, let us rent it from him, um, and really got us happening. And um, and yeah, Randy's still going. He's still got it. He's still doing a record store up in somewhere near Trenton. But anyway, so I did. By then, it was pretty clear. It was like you know, we by the time we went to, so we did. I think six weeks in America, something like that. You know, and people didn't know what to expect. And we were still, we were still finding our feet. We were mostly playing Hot Animal Machine material right then. But some of the stuff that ended up lifetime on Lifetime came in pretty early. Uh, Burn Beyond Recognition was a really early one that wrote. Yeah. that riff at, at Andrew's house, I think. And um, uh, I think we were doing a deep, we were doing Gates of Steel. I think we were doing a uh -huh. day Devo cover <laughs> and we were doing curiously. And we did, I, I think we did, we did one black flag. So we did what I see. Oh yeah. Because, you know, and it was like, we were like, Oh, we should do a black flag song. And Henry <laughs> didn't, but Henry didn't want to do it. He would only do a Dukowski song. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, and um, so then, you know, we did that. And then uh, there was 11 weeks booked in Europe. <laughs> I was like, damn. So, and, you know, we're still writing material. Um, we get to Europe and we're, and we're rehearsing and writing stuff. And then we get to road test that stuff. And nothing, you know, nothing forges songwriting like trying it out live. Absolutely. You know? And so after yeah. 11 weeks in Europe, um we just went straight into the studio henry flew ian over and um you know we went the same the same studio where we'd made hot animal machine in leeds it's bloody cold everybody's complaining and starving but you know we got got a good record out of it yeah um, it's 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 great um you mentioned the songwriting how were you writing these songs were you jamming as a group or were you, you know both. Were, were i mean it, well the, the hot animal machine stuff was mostly riffs that I already had or that Bernie Wandel already had. Yeah. Um, and Henry just sits on the floor and, you know, with his notebook and we just play. Um, and he comes up with words. Um, but for all the later Rollins band stuff, um, it was a bit of a mix. I mean, a lot of stuff would, would come from jam. I mean, I'm, I've just have, I've just got riff itis. I'm always riffs are always popping into my head even now. So I'm always you kind of got to get them out. Otherwise, it <laughs> builds up. And um, so I'm always I was I would I used to show up 
with just tapes and tapes and tapes of riffs and we just sit through them and, and then jam on them. So, I mean, it's, I no nobody wrote a complete song musically, you know, the closest I can think of is, is uh, turned out because Sim had both parts of that in his head and showed them to us. That's about, I think that's, that's the closest I can think of for any song that was, that was presented kind of complete and then remained mostly unchanged. But yeah, they're all, that's why all the songs are collectively credited. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's even later, most of the, most of the time I'd bring in an A part and a B part. And even if they remain kind of unchanged, the, the flavor of it, you know, the song, even, even if, everybody ex- takes takes the riff as it is that's still uh, an editorial judgment and they still it's still a writing credit i yep, think you know yep, yep. um but anyway so that's how most of that stuff came up and eventually every once in a while henry would come up with like he mostly had rhythms rather than riffs um but um yeah but like i said i mean it's it, it's it was a collective all of them were a collective effort no matter where the you know the, the music originated yeah how and when did you end up meeting Jaw Wobble? Oh, that was a cool one. Um, well, you know, I think I was more, uh, I don't know if it's courageous or just, or clueless. Um, <laughs> I don't remember how I got his number, but I got his number and said, hey, can I come over and play some stuff that I'm doing? Because I wanted to see if he was interested in helping me. Right. Um, and I go over to his house and I'm playing him some stuff. And he goes, oh, that's, that's, that's you know, that's pretty interesting let me play something you know and he plays me some stuff and he says well, what are you doing tomorrow <laughs> um well nothing so maybe in the studio can you bring me a bass <laughs> um and that that that's you know it's unfortunate i don't think it's one of his better records i think it's one of the more interesting songs on that record on uh, psalms um and um no I, that's I'm, I'm so proud of that i'm so you know it's like i would love i would love to play with jaw wobble again i mean it's just the the and he was he had just he'd he'd been sober a little while by then and he's just got a, a, a kind of inst, a instinctive musicality yeah so i mean again i haven't seen the man for 35 years but that's 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 my standing memory of him um and what's here even more funnier is that like we were at southern studios and um yeah I ran into Ian. <laughs> Ian was there doing Palehead uh-huh. <laughs> um, with Adrian Sherwood. Just down the, they were like, you know, they were just down the hall. So I was like, what are you? But it's, you know, when you're younger, that stuff doesn't seem that unusual. Right. They're like, well, of course I'm in the studio. Of course my friend from DC is here. You know, I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, I'll catch you later. You know, maybe talk for like 30 seconds and didn't consider how strange it was. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's how the jaw wobble thing happened. And um, I think when it came, record came out, you couldn't, you couldn't remember my name. So I'm credited as American Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's lovely. And he's got a really cool new project with two of his kids. Oh, yeah. Um, which is worth checking out. But anyway, um, yeah. And then, we, you know, eventually we get up to, we do eventually get up to Chris D. Right? Then yeah. We moved from the UK. So in 89, I, I, was, I, was, I was seeing an American woman and... We decided, you know, she was actually, I think, in New Zealand at that point, and I was in the UK, and we decided, okay, well, let's go to LA as a kind of middle point. So I moved from the UK to Los Angeles and ended up living, like, one street away from Henry. Oh, so wow. He lived on Malton, and I lived on Golden Gate. We both lived in Silver Lake, you know, before it was trendy, when it was still dangerous. Um, and, 
Yeah, I don't remember where I met Christy. I uh, sorry, is that what, is that what you, your next question? Sure. Was going yeah, to yeah. So life, no, I mean, lifetime was for yeah. sure out by the time this stone oh, yeah, by stone lifetime, thing happened. Lifetime was out, and then no, by then we were making, um, we would have been making hard volume around then, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah. So I'm trying to think. So yeah, I was living in Silver Lake, but you know, again, you're just on the scene, so you run in, you know, especially through Henry. Um, because also Henry was starting his book publishing at that point with his with his housemate Laura, um, and at that point so there there were the the guys from the Blasters had books. Chris D probably had a book. You know he was doing there he was he was doing a lot of a lot of you know just in that kind of Cafe Largo book reading way. In fact, I think I even did a book did a book reading once with Dave Alvin and Henry, maybe Lydia, maybe Thurston. Hmm. Can't remember. But anyway, you know, so I think I must have met uh, Chris D through the book publishing thing um, and just being on the scene. And I gave, again, it was the same thing. I gave him a bunch of like demos I'd been working on. In fact, stuff I'd had done in England. And one of those songs ended up being I Passed for Human. Yep. He was like, hey, you know, can, I, can we use this? I'm like, yeah, that's what it's for. You know. <laughs> okay, some of the other people in the band, Dean Steele. Tell me about Dean. Dean Dean is 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 I don't he's still playing but he's I think he is he Dean's great I think his background is mostly actually jazz and upright um again I haven't seen him for we're in contact on Facebook so I mean the band so Danny let me start backwards Danny Frankel the drummer who is just phenomenal and he's still playing he lives out at like 29 Palms way I think out in the desert outside LA I used to roadie for his band in DC because at one you know the big band, the band that got signed was a band called the Urban Verbs. Yep. Um, and I used to crew for them um, as, you know, partially because they're my friends and partially as a way of just getting into the gigs for free. Danny was the drummer in the Urban Verbs. And so we knew each other. And when I moved to L.A., he had already moved to L.A. and was doing, you know, getting getting quite a lot of work because he's just a very good, very inventive drummer. Um, and I, again, I think after Chris, you know, invited me to come play he must have asked me so somehow I, I got i got i put danny and chris in uh in in contact and that was really fun that was kind of like it was weird i mean at that point i was must have been 20 I don't know, young 20s but it was still for me it's oh my god i'm playing in a band with danny frankel you know <laughs> um you know, and i kind of still feel that way so dan if you're listening <laughs> um you know i'll say it's interesting he's just he's a very very creative drummer and it was, it, it was, I think it was, that was a really straight gig for him. I think um, playing just, you know, that kind of meat and potatoes stuff. Um, and Dean, I had, I met through Chris and I don't know where they knew each other from, but again, just from being around. And um, again, just very interesting, very, very, he always struck me as very kind of stoic, you know, kind of philosophical guy, um, good bass player. And then John was, seriously talented i mean john was already in the band i think i think chris and i think chris and dean and john had already formed the kind of core i think um you have to ask chris um and john again very good guitar player much more on the scene and he went on to it's it's interesting he went on to do some very interesting kind of pre-industrial projects which are again not as well known as they should be so he had a he had a project called a band called ethel meat plow yeah Right. Which is kind of like, again, it's very sampler based, very loop based, very aggressive in a way, kind of like fetus, but different. Um, But again, much less well known. 
but um, it was quite, I remember him playing it for me. I was going, this is all, it's all machines. I was kind of baffled by it. Um, but yeah, John, John was, a, was a, was a, he, yeah, he was an innovator. That's, that's not as well known as he should be, but he was also a very good rock and roll guitar player. You know? So that's how, that's how, you know, those guys were. Yeah. So anything where you get a songwriting credit was probably riffs that you had coming into the band. Um, yeah. So I've had, I passed for human was, was actually something I had demoed as an instrumental back in, back in the UK for a different project. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I got a, cre- a writing credit on that. I mean, I'm trying to think what else is, is, is sick motherfuckers one that you're credited mother- on. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. There we go. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's another one from the same from the same bunch of demos. Um, and it was really nice to you know again because I, I mean I love the flesh eaters. I mean so again, you know when I met Chris D, I was like, oh my god, I'm meeting a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was really chuffed. I was like, oh my god, you know. Chris, Chris D writing words for songs I wrote, you know, and, and still feel that way a bit. Yeah. And it was fun. I mean, it was, it was a fun band to be in. I couldn't devote as much time to it as, as I'd wished because I was just busy doing a lot of Rollins stuff. And we, I think again, the, we must've been working because all, because Andrew and Sim and Taya were all in LA when I was doing gigs with Chris. I remember playing like the gaslight and a couple of other places and them being there then they wouldn't have been, they would not have been in LA if we hadn't been rehearsing and recording. So my schedule must have been um, pretty tight, but it was a fun band to be in. Those are fun songs to play. I, I you know, unfortunately, like, not unfortunately, but ironically, for me, my the favorite song to play is actually the Neats cover. Yeah. Is Ghosts. Cause it's, I love that kind of, that kind of Raga type descending riff. And I mean, I like the other songs too, but that's as a guitar player, that was the most fun for me to play. Do, yeah. Do you know whose idea that was to cover that song? No, no Chris brought that one. Yeah. You know, he's got he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of music and cinema, and I I, I knew of the Neats, but I didn't know any of their songs, and so he brought that one. And the the Otis Redding song, I got the one. Um, that was all. That would also be Chris. Yep. Yeah. You mentioned shows. I feel like the band played like just a handful of shows. Yeah, we didn't play a lot, maybe less, like a dozen or, 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 or so, you know. And what's funny is I saw there's a, there's a flyer I found, um, or maybe Chris found, I put it on Facebook on there, so like the, 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 for playing uh, Al's, Al's Bar, I think it was. And uh, the, the lineup is uh, Clawhammer, Stone by Stone, and Nirvana. Yeah, with you headlining. <laughs> no, 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 it's Clawhammer headlining. I oh, was think, it? But, but uh, <laughs> But I think Nirvana were bottom of the bill, but I have no, rec- I don't think, I'm sure I didn't see them. Um, yeah. I have no recollection of it. That's actually, I didn't, I didn't know until I saw the flyer. I was like, oh my God, did that happen? I remember the gig. Um, but I don't remember the, uh, but I don't remember the other acts. But it's just kind of funny what you come across. But yeah, we didn't play very much. And then I had to, again, because Rollins Band, just, you know, we toured pretty relentlessly. Yeah. So when we were gone, we were gone for months and months and months. So. Um, and then actually after 89, I moved to San Francisco, I think in 1990, and then moved back east. I spent like a year without living in it, just with my stuff in storage, and then I moved back to D.C. Um, so I think that, that so, and I'm, I don't know if Stone by Stone kept on going, but I think Chris kept going, doing, we're doing a different project after. I mean, obviously he got the Flesh Eaters back since then, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think it, it I think it morphed a, back into the flesh eaters pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, which is good. I mean, that's you know, great band. 
And and it's funny. I remember this is interesting. With the, so the, the when we recorded Stone by Stone, we did it at um, in the studio belonged to a guy called Biff Sanders. Four Way Cross was his band. Four Way Cross. Yeah. There we, yes, there we go. And and with, this is just these kind of that weird synchrony. His dad uh, was a judge that one of my schoolmates used to clerk for. <laughs> <laughs> and his his dad's actually I think his real name was Barefoot Saunders. Wow, um, Biff's dad. Um, it was a cool, it's a cool little studio, and it was a, it was on the top floor of some building, you know. Again, faded glory in downtown LA. You'd walk, it was, you'd walk in it. There was a, a sign, like a 1940s neon sign with the neon missing. It just it was called Dance Land. Right. And I've got photos of because the, the entranceway was just so kind of like it looked like something out of a Tom Waits song. It was just kind of like <laughs> you know, it was like dusty, dirty you know was probably the hot spot once in 1946 and was still limping along somehow and the studio was it was up upstairs from there but that's you know i, I remember i remember not liking the guitar tone i got <laughs> that's that's i guess it was a while it was a while ago yeah well i mean considering you know in rollins band for sure you're a shredder at least yeah in my in my mind and this album's more like a garage rock album or something Absolutely, but that was part of the appeal. I mean, you know, the, the, the it's kind of L.A. had that. I love that kind of. There's a there's a crossover of like, flame and groovies and country rock. You know, and call, it's that cowpunk thing that X tapped into and the Flesh Eaters had and Divine Horsemen, and it's kind of trashy, but but definitely out west. Yeah. Um, and it, that, that was a real treat for me. I mean, because you know, in in in, in, in Rollins, we're doing all this kind of like crimsoid flat fives and you know you know and to be able to play with with like well also to to play with less less a lot less distortion and a lot less and more and more nuance i suppose was just kind of fun you know and also it's it's, it is a bit of a relax it's a bit of a vacation you to go play somebody else's music yeah (laughs) you know um because if you're out on stage and you're presenting you're putting your soul out there and you're putting your guts out for everybody that's it's really taxing whereas you know you get to go play guitar and have fun and drink beer and eat cheese you know <laughs> and it's not and you don't have to worry like i say it's it's, it's like a vacation so doing uh, you know other people's gigs like a chris gig would be you know was yeah it was just fun and a two guitar band too yeah exactly but also and john is, is actually was a much more adept guitar player for that style um than i was which made it which made it even easier. It was kind of like you know, here I'll drive. Okay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just sit here and watch the scenery. This is fun. Um, yeah. The album's only nine songs. Do you do you recall? Did you when you played live to round out the set? Did you do other covers or like some flesh eater songs or anything? I I to be honest, I really don't remember. Uh, you'd have to ask Chris because I really don't remember. Also, if you do ask him, see if he has any live recordings. I would love to hear live recordings of that band. I do not have any. Um, if I did, they would have got, there was, I had a box of stuff that kind of went missing between San Francisco and DC when I moved back and had a lot of precious stuff in it, but to know, I would, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear live stuff. So I don't remember what else was, you know, I don't remember what else, what other material we might've played. Yeah. Uh, the song pale fire, I still burn inside credited to, to the whole band. I'm, I'm assuming that was like improvised in the studio or at least it was yeah i don't know nothing was improvised in the studio but we, we probably wrote it collectively in one of the in one of the rehearsal rooms you know 
Um, he might have had words and we just came up with something. Again, I, I don't remember clearly. Um, are you going to talk to Chris? Yeah, we, we, we do. Yeah, we have. We've had him on the show before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please send him my regards. I'll I will. talk to him in person. It's great. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned moving to San Francisco. Did Is that mm-hmm. when you ended up playing with Stephen Brown from Tuxedo Moon? No, actually, that was that was that was um, that was later. No, Stephen was living in Brussels by then. <laughs> um, no, I met him in Belgium. Hmm. Um, uh, no, so it's, it's San Francisco was because again, my my then partner um, got into San Francisco Art Institute, and um, so we moved up there. But I, I was barely there. I mean, I lived. We lived in. The, we lived in the Mission, and I think I was in my apartment there total of maybe six weeks um honestly because then the, you know, again right. it, was just, it was just a year um and then I, you know i moved back and we broke up and i just put my stuff in storage and just lived on the bus um you know lived in the van right um but um yeah so san francisco and then yeah and then back to dc moved back to dc and yeah stephen brown who i still i'm still in contact with and still actually work with um even though he's now in mexico yeah, I met him in Holland, um, and you know, Tuxedo Moon were on, you know, were on one of their many breaks, and he was mostly doing records with Blaine Blaine Reininger, and he was working on a project, and he was he he, came, he was with a mutual friend of Henry's, a filmmaker, and I think he was pretty hammered, and he invited me to go on the tour. <laughs> I was like, sure, you know. So at the end, directly at the end of a Rollins tour, I hop on a train to Brussels, and go straight to rehearsals, and that was and you know. Much to his mortification, I get there and he discovers that I can't sight read. <laughs> Fortunately, I have a good ear. Um, but yeah, no, Stephen's still Stephen's down in Oaxaca, and he's doing really interesting music. He's got he has a band sometimes called Nine Rain. He's been doing a lot of uh, cinema music, and Blaine, all the Tuxedo Moon guys. It's really worth checking in on them. They're always doing really interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, carrying 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 on the faith. How on earth did you end up playing on a David Bowie record? Um, because I'm friends with Reeves. So, um, so Reeves Gabrels and I met uh, 95 or 96 and just kind of stayed vaguely in touch. And um, uh, he moved to New York in, I guess, 98, something like that, um, to work, you know, and uh, he and they were working on various material and we just hung out. You know, we were both, we were both in kind of like, um, my, my, you know, my then marriage was, was in dissolution. His marriage was in dissolution. You know, our bands were both in flux, you know, our careers. Well, he actually had a pretty stable job, but I mean, basically we kind of, we kind of, we were in similar places. We were very simpatico. And, um, so we just hung out a lot and then he started working and, you know, it is, it is a situation of like, if you hang around in, in a barbershop, eventually you get a haircut. Um, you know, uh, if you, if you hang around and you're not a jerk and you demonstrate that you're competent at something, eventually somebody will give you something to do. So they're, they were also recording literally around the corner from my apartment. They were at looking glass over on, uh, Merrick street in New York. And, um, you know, I used to go up and say hi to Reeves and, you know, it's like, I kind of contain my volcanic excitement. Oh my God, that's David Bowie. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, they were working and there would be stuff going on then and they needed editing done in real time. So they would say, so they, you know, I would go and pick up a dat and they say, can you, can you edit this and bring it back? I'm like, sure. 
So the editing turned into the hanging out. Yeah, I just hung out. I mean, it was really, it was actually kind of fun. People go, did you play with David Bowie? I'm like, well, I, I got to play badly on one song, but, you know, at the same time, I hung out with him for a summer, watched C-SPAN, and he taught me about painting. <laughs> um, he taught me how to use eBay, right? And so they're looking, they're, 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 they're at, um, not Looking Glass, it was at Chung King, sorry, on Hooky on Street. You know, and he's doing vocal takes, and they're having, and looking at his watching him to run out to press buy at the last possible minute, and then going back and doing it. And I was like, what are you doing? So he taught me how to use eBay. <laughs> and talking about you know but you know uh, patrick caulfield the painter and we watched c-span you know and that was all cool and i went in one day and, and he and reeves were in the, the lounge and they're kind of looking kind of kind of smirking and uh david said you know was like, um how would you like to be in our band <laughs> i was like oh let me think about that <laughs> <laughs> you know and um no he was very nice but then you know, we got booked we were booked to play at the Malaya tour that was supposed to begin at sunrise on January 1st, 2000 in New Zealand. Um, and then there were subsequent New Zealand, Australia, and like in Japan dates. Everything was focused, centered around that one beginning festival. Um, and it became clear even by like late August that the guys who were putting the festival on did not have a clue what they were doing and the thing was not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, and also at that point, you know, Reeves was getting ready to leave the band. Uh, he, you know, he wanted to go and do his own thing. And I think so between Reeves' departure from the band not going quite as smoothly as he had hoped, and the cancellation of the thingy, because I was, you know, I was kind of predicated on his being there. Right. So um, when he left, everything was in such a swirl that there was no. I, I just kind of I got caught up in the eddies, you know, which was a shame. But because um, that would have been that would have been the cool because it's kind of like it's kind of like Harvey, the invisible rabbit. You know, I had this I had the, I had this cool job, but it never really manifested, <laughs> um, you know, and the thing and it's and it's 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 kind of a bane in a way because it it um, it's something it's the one thing everybody notices. Right. 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 And like, oh, my God, you played with David Bowie. I'm like, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I got to play on one song. I played really badly. Fortunately, Mark Plotty edited edited it to to make it usable, um, and um, it, that's much more exciting than oh my god, David Bowie taught you how to use eBay, right? <laughs> um, and you talked to you about modern twentieth century British painting. Um, but uh, yes, so you feel a little bit you feel a little bit like a fraud, even though you know it, yes, it did really happen, but no, it wasn't. It's you know. I don't know, but but David did send me other work. It was I mean he sent me some really interesting work afterwards. He one of the um, early attempts to get audio onto websites because remember we're talking this nineteen ninety nine two thousand right? right? The web still really still people are using fourteen four dial up modems right? Um, and uh, Thomas Dolby was working with this company that was attempting to to sonify I think the verb is um, people's websites. And he approached David and David turned him over to me. So I ended up working. I ended up doing, doing sonifying, doing the audio for Bowie net. Right. David was like, Hey, can you, would you like to do this for my website? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was, again, it was an interesting challenge. The technology was really crappy. And I thought, the, I thought it was cause I was stupid, but it was just actually the technology didn't work very well. Um, but I ended up doing a really, you know, I'm very proud of it. Uh, interactive score 
for the whole website, which again, very had to be somewhat like, um, do you know Terry Riley's in C? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And every, everything had to be able to work with everything else. So no matter where you went on the website, whatever you moused over, it had to work totally with wherever you might have just come from. Mm. Um, and it was it was it was like yeah, multi input, and it couldn't you couldn't just make everything major chord C. It had to work. You know, it had to be interesting. Um, and I got to do that, um, which was cool. And there were other little bits of work here and there, and. Um, but that was that was the extent of it, you know. But um, okay, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's the Bowie story. <laughs> nice uh, man, missing. And now you're in Australia. Now I am in Australia. In fact, it is it is a sunny autumn morning, and I'm sitting in my car. <laughs> it's the only place where it's quiet, you know. Um, yeah, now I'm in Australia doing some music down here, um, and um, I'm living just north of Sydney. And I got a cool. I'm doing. I mostly do instrumental projects. Ever since you know, all of my solo stuff is is mostly just about finding out what guitars can do. And yeah. you know, um, people always go, "Why well, you should get a singer?" I'm like, "You know, nah, nah." <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so when I, I lived, I lived in Holland before I moved here. And um, yeah, I was doing this kind of in, just instrumental projects that I, that I put up myself, um, kind of like. Jeff Beck, but not as good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> People, you know, like my acoustic stuff is my utter failure to emulate John Faye, and my electric stuff is my utter failure to emulate Jeff Beck. You know, and occasionally Sonny Chirac or Zappa, but you know, yeah, I can't can't play like any of them. And I, I fail so spectacularly that people think it's a style. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think almost all of your eclectic and amazing solo albums are up on your band camp what should we watch for next what's your next project um the next project is i'm actually there's a there's a i'm working i've got a i'm actually playing with another guitar player because oh. usually i work trios with a percussionist and a drum so i mean like a four four person trio with drums and percussion but at the moment i've actually got a guitar guitar bass and drums band that i'm in with a really wonderful guitar player called bob spencer who's australian and he's been, he's, he's a journeyman. He's been in, in pretty much every Australian band except for ACDC and NXS. Um, <laughs> and he's very good. It's, it's very interesting because we have similar tastes, but utterly different styles. He's much better technician than I am. He's got much more, he's, he, he, he's got much, he plays, he much, much more restraint. And I just kind of my quirk, my quirkiness comes out everywhere. And he shows, he keeps it on track. Um, the project is called Even Odd. So it's even slash odd. And, um, we're just demoing at the moment, starting to get into do some like small shows, and I just the way I describe it is, um, you know, the it, it's meant to sound like like Dark Star by the Grateful Dead, but as if it was being played by television. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> so like much more angular, yeah. But there's a lot of improvisation because as I get older, I'm I'm less interested in riffs and stuff. I mean, I like playing good, you know, good riffs and good melodies, but I'm also I, I really need the freedom of just free improvisation. Um, and for that, you can, you, know, you there's, there is a, again, a horizon where you can go from the dead all the, you know, all the way to the orchestra and back. Right. And I like having that freedom and just letting, letting the music see where it's, where it wants to go. And that's sort of what the band does. But um, uh, there's no, there's nothing, there's no release schedule at the moment, but there is a website, which is like even odd Oh, um, 
but just you know it's still everything's still in, in the works but that's what i'm doing at the moment i'm doing you know, planning to get back to doing solo acoustic shows at some point when i when i get around to actually practicing acoustic <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> right on well we'll keep our eyes peeled for for the yeah, new project for sure <clears throat> great thanks is there anything else you need to know yeah no chris thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today oh, i really thanks, appreciate thanks, it thanks for me. get rid of like my you know verbiage quota for the morning right you know? <laughs> um no it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you and um yeah follow you know get in touch if there's anything i left out or wasn't clear that you still need to know i will thanks a lot i really appreciate it no worries yeah. take care you take care bye. bye all right one last time brant i can't believe you didn't get into the end of silence did you talk to him about it off pod a little bit yeah okay okay S- spill spill well there's nothing to really spill it was oh, just come on me kissing his ass basically <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is it is a surprise to have you know one of the axe people from rollins band on this totally garagey record and it's a awesome record i think one of your questions during the interview also hit on something that struck me like it's kind of short it's too bad that it's so short i bet you they could have and you were alluding to this as well like surely there would have been other wicked covers that they could have put their own spin on and just you know throw them on this i do hope that some of those live recordings if they exist that they see the light of day eventually yeah Uh, A few things I'll follow up on. We briefly mentioned the band he was in, Circa 85, Surf and Dave and the Absent Legends. They released one single and a full length called In Search of a Decent Haircut on Crammed Discs. That's on YouTube, uh, and you should definitely check it out. It's kind of jittery, three-chord, little surfy, new wave. Uh, Dave Coleman, the vocalist, kind of has a Jonathan Richmond drawl. It's cool. Check Mm. that out. Looks like he's possibly still going, too. I found some live footage from about 10 years ago of Dave Coleman. Chris has played with uh, Industrial Collective The Joy Thieves, as well as Mart- Martin Atkins' Pig Face Project, which he toured with in the early 2000s. A few of the other projects um, we mentioned in the interview, if you want to check them out, the Jaw Wobble album he's on is 1987's Psalms. He's on the track The Hymns. Stephen Brown of Tuxedo Moon has many solo albums. Chris plays on 1991's Half Out record. Uh, the Bowie track we mentioned is If I'm Dreaming My Life from 1999's Hours album. And then there's, a, of course, there's the awesome solo stuff, um, which really runs the gamut, musically speaking. He's got a few early ones on Henry, Henry's 21361 label from when Rollins Band was still active, Language from 1995, and Nonfiction from 1997. Language is is more experimental. It's kind of like music concrete. Uh, Rollins is on it. Joe Cole is sampled on it. Uh, of course, he, he had been murdered um, a few years prior to that album coming out. Roland S. Howard is on it. Uh, nonfiction, um, the drummer on that record is is Brandon Finley. It's, he kind of gets co-credited on the album. Uh, he was in Dog Eat Dog. Uh, that's more of the intro jazz rock shredding that we, we all love from Chris. That mm. one's super killer. Um, he also did an EP with Brandon in 2012 called Maybe Definitely. Uh, he played guitar on some of Henry's 90s spoken word releases like Black Coffee Blues and some of the other ones from that era. And 
some of his more current stuff, like Chris Haskett's four-person trio, is up on his band camp. Definitely urge everyone to check it all out and support Chris. Agreed. I liked when he was talking about Nugent and Roman Polanski and, and Woody Allen, etc. I think mm. about this a lot, like who gets a pass, who doesn't, um, who can I continue to support? Like, for example, Ryan Adams recently came through and I chose not to go. Uh, many people I know did go. Uh, I'm not judging, um, but some of the people I know who went, it kind of surprised me that, that they they did go. Anyways, it, it made me think of this recent article Eugene Robinson of Oxbow wrote for Decibel Magazine. He has a column each issue, and um, it's always great. And his most recent one is about Phil Anselmo um, and his kind of white power salute. Well, not kind of. He did a white power salute a few years back on stage, and it's kind of derailed some of this Pantera I don't know what, it's not a reunion, but this thing he's doing with Zach Wilde, this Pantera thing. And he talks about, Eugene does in this piece about how James Hetfield, Axl Rose, and Angus Young all got a pass. I'm not sure what the Angus Young reference is. Mm. I don't even want to know. I didn't Google it. but Yeah, yeah. I mean, all, immediately when you say that, the top five things pop into my head and I, no, no. Yeah. Uh, he talks about Ian Mackay and guilty of being white in this article. And I, I like how he puts it in a more, uh, it's more a matter for him of just, um, losing interest. He says, for me, it's animal and involuntary. Elvis Costello goes off on Ray Charles because he's black. I just lose interest in Costello. I don't choose to, I just did. Axel Rose uses not for polite society words for blacks and gays. I don't lose interest in Rose. I don't choose to, I just don't. I don't know if I'm capturing what he's he's trying to convey in that piece, but taken as a whole, his piece just kind of resonated with me on this topic. Is he just saying, like, for some people, it might be the last straw, kind of, in terms of your interest? And when you still have an interest, they get a pass? Is that what he's saying? I think he's saying for him, he doesn't sit down and think about, do I want to continue to listen to Guns N' Roses? It's just... What do I like? It, no, it's just more like, does what he said make him not just lose interest in the band anymore? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I often think about this too, in the sense that what if there was the internet in the eighties? Yeah. Like would, would any of our favorite musicians have survived? Yeah. I don't know. Like, you know, I like Ted Nugent, right. As a guitar player. Um, but it's hard to listen to Ted Nugent now because it, it's it you, is you 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 can't listen to him and not think about what a piece of shit he is. I know. No, I dro I stopped the Nuge. Yeah, uh, I stopped him cold turkey. It was easy because there's so much other non-stupid people making great music. Yeah, and not and again, Chris Chris made the good point too. Like it's not like he's stupid. Yeah, he says dumb things, but he's not stupid, and that's the problem almost. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like Bill Cosby or something, right? Like when I was a kid. I thought Bill Cosby was hilarious. Uh, and I probably would have showed my kids Bill Cosby, like some of his stand-up, but I just can't. Yeah, same here. You know? Oh, are you kidding me, man? Bill Cosby raised me after school yeah. every day, like from grade five to whatever, right? Yeah. That's what the Cosby show was on, reruns. And you just get home, sit in front of the TV until mom and dad gets home. Like that was, I don't know. 
I, I hear you though. It's really tough to articulate. Yeah. Well, I want, I don't want to misrepresent what Eugene Robinson was trying to say either. So don't, you know, don't quote me on any of that stuff. You know, yeah. if people are interested, they should seek out and read that article for themselves. I just love that all these dudes, you know, had such eclectic tastes. Like, you know, he's talking about going to see Anthony Braxton, Sun Ra, Fred Frith, Beefheart. I think he, the way he puts it is they were into like the freedom and courage of it, which I just love. Yeah. Anything that's not on the radio, let's yeah. go. Yeah. Rollins Band. We've now had three of the five members on the show, and I've <laughs> I've managed to resist the urge. Are you to, are you to, ever are, are you ever going to try and get Henry on the show, man? Oh, I've tried a few times. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to resist the urge. Sorry, I cut you off. Well, just to you know, ask a a zillion hyper specific questions about various songs and stuff. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found this cool spiel. I was, you know, kind of digging in a little bit onto like the early I'm kind of intrigued by like the the forming of the Rollins band and that you know the the I don't go back Henrietta to, Collins yeah I don't go back to that era the hot animal machine era as much as the actual full-on Rollins band I found this cool article uh, from September 6 6 2022 um, by this guy Mark Goodall and it's called an encounter with Henrietta Collins by Mark Goodall it's just a blog post I found and he's, he's talking about, he played bass and sang in a punk band called Nerve Rack. He goes, uh, and this is between 87 and 93 he played in this band. The group was formed in Leeds, a city in the Yorkshire region of the UK that had made a small but significant contribution to punk and post-punk culture. Influential bands such as Gang of Force, Gritty Politi, and Mekons had emerged from the higher education music scene there. Um... Mm -hmm. He's talking about Crass, um, Rudimentary Pe Penny, Flexapink Indians, and kind of the anarchist leanings of, of these groups and how his band kind of subscri subscribed to that. In 1988, Nerve Rack began to pick up UK support slots with a range of North American post-punk bands that were plowing a similar furrow, but with apparently much greater success. For some reason at this time, North American punk bands wanted to play in Europe and promoters were happy to oblige. At first, my group was delighted with the opportunity to play alongside such luminaries as Fugazi, Jesus Lizard, UT, Naked Raygun, and No Means No. But it was not long before clear musical and ideological differences began to appear. It was against this backdrop that the renowned punk singer and writer Henry Rollins set up camp in Leeds. Rollins Rollins' influential band, Black Flag, had recently split, and Rollins was at a loss as to what to do next. One of his old Washington, D.C. friends, Chris Haskett, was taking a degree at Leeds University and offered to help out, telling Rollins that he would sort out the music and some musicians if Rollins could deal with the words. Uh, he's talking about the, the rehearsals for the Rollins band and the recording at Offbeat Studios. Many of these leads recordings subsequently appeared on the Hot Animal Machine, Do It, and Lifetime releases. For me, though, the most memorable of these was the Henrietta Collins and the Wife Beating Child Haters EP, which is completely ridiculous that that would be a standout um, for anybody. But, <laughs> but then he goes on... Um, on 29 October 1988, the Rollins Band performed at the Tartan Bar 
at Leeds University, he says Haskett had become, quote, entertainment secretary for the institution, making bookings easier. Like most British post-punk bands, we, Nerve Racked, considered ourselves an uncompromising musical outfit. However, as soon as Rollins took the stage, all such delusions were blasted away. Uh, Rollins morphed into a tour de force of anger and aggression. Dressed only in a tiny, tiny pair of black shorts, the singer stomped around the stage, declaiming and screaming his massive search-and-destroy tattoo, hypnotizing the unruly punks in the crowd. The atmosphere in the small and suffocating bar can best be described as edgy. We were impressed, but also a little troubled. He's talking here later about um, Nerve Rack opening for the Rollins band, and his friend Doug had actually interviewed Rollins during his black day, flag days and warned us that he could be prickly. <laughs> and, that, and he's talking about um, wanting to sound check before the band and he goes alarm bells rang when we arrived at the venue to find the musicians running their sound check while Rollins performed a series of grueling push-ups in the middle of the empty dance floor <laughs> the Rollins band seemed to take an eternity to get ready there was a third band in the lineup also waiting by the side of the stage the clock was ticking and the doors were about to open Eventually, Doug plucked up the courage and politely asked Rollins when it would be our turn to set up. Don't worry, said Rollins. We're sound checking for all of the bands. <laughs> I don't know. It just goes on from there. It's a, it's a pretty hilarious article, and I thought anyways, and uh, pretty cool too. So, I don't know. I was just listening to a lot of this stuff, including that Henrietta Collins this week, and uh, that doesn't really hold up for me, but that Hot Animal Machine is a great record that I don't really listen to as much as I should. Yeah. I only have them comboed on a single disc. That's, I don't know. Do you have them like a separate records? No, that's all I have too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It fits on the disc. Hot animal machine are the better tracks. I would agree. Yeah. And then I, I was thinking about the two thirteen sixty one books a little bit you know, Henry's books that he, the, he really pumped these out in the nineties. I couldn't find one that with Chris D Chris, you know, Chris Haskett mentions that maybe that's, um, how he, he knew, uh, knew Chris or something. Chris D was, was through that connection. There may have been one, but I couldn't find it. Uh, but there were some really cool ones in the nineties. Some of these I have, some I don't, but like there's at least three Nick, Nick Cave books, a, a Michael Girard book, a couple of them actually. Um, that original publication of Rock and the Pop Narcotic, uh, Iggy yeah. Pop's I Need More. There's some cool photography books, a whole bunch of poetry books by people like Trisha Warden, Exine Zervenka, Bill Shields. Uh, there's a book by and about Nick Zed. It's it's really too too bad a lot of that stuff isn't available anymore. There's the Joe Cole book. Yep. Uh, we've talked about well. that one before. That's cool. Yeah. He, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Henry put out a, I don't have it, the Jeffrey Lee Pierce yep. lyrics book. Yep. As well. Maybe, maybe two of those. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't really keep, he doesn't really keep them in, in print for long. And then they just skyrocket in price. Yeah. Well, I'm, there's probably not much of a market for a lot of that stuff anymore, but. Mm. Yeah. It would be cool if they were, you know, if you could buy Kindle versions e of them or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, ebooks would be good, I bet. Yeah. For those like some some of them I gotta admit, when I've had them I haven't kept all of them that I've come across over the years. Some of them I've I've kept, you know, especially the ones that are talking about like band tours or band reformations, like those types of ones. I've I've definitely kept those. So, some of the older ones I've kept. Some of those ones in the I'm gonna say mid to late nineties, where it's just a ton of random thoughts. Yeah. Th- those ones didn't really grab me, but I wish I still had them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool that Chris has a, a new project with Bob Spencer of Skyhooks and a very famous Australian band. And he was also in the choir boys. He was in Rose Tattoo fairly recently. This, this Bob Spencer dude. Uh, I can't wait to hear that. He, I think he, the band's called even odd and he describes them as dark star played by television. Yeah. <laughs> That sounded interesting. Yeah. Let's get into this record, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. Okay, so it was recorded at Motive Studios, March 89 and October of 88. So I'm assuming in two sessions, but, you know, maybe more throughout those months. Uh, It was released in June 1989 on LP, CD, and cassette. So track one, side one, All I Have, music by Chris D and Chris Haskett and John Napier, words by Chris D. And I'm going to be reading some excerpts from Chris's book, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, uh, which is mostly lyrics and, and writing from Chris, but sometimes he does little spiels on some of the songs as well. He says, I'd actually written All I Have in 1982 and performed it with a very funky electric guitar without a band and the amp turned to maximum reverb while I sang the lyrics. It was to appear on a largely spoken word compilation of LA poets called Voices of the Angels, but was never used. I rewrote it for this album, updating it slightly to be inclusive of my recently shot down in flames self-destructive relationship. Now we've talked about Voices of the Angels uh, before and it's it's kind of sequel from 83 English as a second language and 84's neighborhood rhythms on Harvey Kubernick's freeway records yep kind of the pre- precursor to what he and Ginn did later on with New Alliance with the spoken word stuff Chris is on all three of them and I yep. I don't know if maybe he didn't know this when he he wrote this in his book his his book you know is is a little bit older um or maybe he just never knew that this happened at all. But all I have, the, this version that he's talking about, is actually on that second release in the series, English as a Second Language. And uh, on the LP, he's credited with playing, quote, Japanese-style glass guitar. And it's most definitely fucked, whatever it is. Uh, the guts of this song are are there for sure. You can hear it. And the lyrics are almost virtually identical to to uh, this version. It's wild as hell. Definitely need to check that out. Right off the bat, this version for me is, it's just so awesome to hear Chris belting it out. Um, Amazing lyricist. I love his voice. Mm -hmm. Um, Lyrics like, a heart that beats at the speed of light, a mind that sticks like flypaper dynamite. Sounds like uh, Chris Haskett says he maybe took a backseat to John in terms of playing leads on on this record 
which makes sense. There are some fantastic Thunders licks getting peeled off throughout the album and on this song for sure. Perfect for the style of the band. Um, when Danny Frankel goes into that marching beat on the snare at the end of the song too, just whoa. Just whoa, hey? Yeah, yeah it's a total rager of an opener for sure yeah. on this record. Yeah. Track two, Meantime. Music by Chris D, John Napier, words by Chris D. In his book, Chris says this one is a pretty humdrum love song, played well and with taste by everyone, but it's not particularly memorable, either lyrically or musically. I completely disagree. Yeah. No disrespect to Chris, um, but I, I, I dis- disagree with that assessment. It's a nice contrast to the rockers. The bass really carries the melody, which is cool. Yep. Uh, Chris does his croon on this one, which is wicked. I re- I really dug this one, especially the the pre-chorus, this secret ain't no secret part. Yeah, it's got a, an amazing opening intro to the song. Some great 12-string, yep. it sounds like to me. And uh, the slight return at the end of the song is yep. awesome. Yeah, it just, is. Yeah. Just awesome. Uh, throughout the album, but on this song for sure, the cool interplay between the guitars, like they're playing somewhat different picked chords and they kind of weave it together like Keith and Ron. It's awesome. You know, considering this band was pretty short-lived, they had their shit dialed. Yeah. Track three is the title track, I Pass for Human. Music by Chris Haskett, words Chris D. This song shares a title with Chris's debut film as a director, which has been at the top of my I Must Procure list for quite some time now. Uh, There's a few used copies on Amazon, US only. Um, So, you know. VHS? VHS only? No, DVD. Oh, Uh, no way. It came out in the 90s, so. Or actually, it came out in the mid-2000s, I think. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah. Cost an arm and a leg, of course, to get it here. So, so I haven't pulled the trigger, but I might have to. Um, I did ask Chris if there was any connection to this track and the movie, like if it was used in the movie or anything, and he said no. In his book, he says it's by far the best song on the album, and it's definitely a standout for, for me. It's a grinding blues dirge. Um, awesome the way Chris croons in the first few verses and then howls the fir- third verse like... Hey, Cretans don't cry and birds don't sing. There's no truth you'll believe that'll make wedding bells ring. Ooh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and he's got these passages where his vocals are doubled. It sounds kind of supernatural. But the thing for me is the song is very hypnotic. The yeah. way that the, the bass track, very hypnotic. I don't like this band. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, heard of this band, The Doors. <laughs> but it kind of reminds me of Doors songs that I've heard in that kind of, um, you know, very slinky, sleazy, hypnotic type of track. I loved it. Yeah, you'll hear later Chris Chris references Jim Morrison. Track four, Time Stands Still, Words and Music by Chris D. An early acoustic-based version of this is on the Time Stands Still album. Chris did in 1984 with a bunch of his friends. Kind of pre-Divine Horseman, although it says... It's the album's credited to Christie slash Divine Horseman. Um, Julie Christensen and Robin Jameson are both on the album. 
Uh, they weren't really a band yet at that point. It was more of a solo album. Anyways, we've, we've talked um, about that record before. You, you should get the Atavistic CD reissue. It has a number of tracks that ended up being re-recorded for Devil's River on it. In his book, he talks about this album kind of tying in with uh, that group of musicians he was associated with in the era when he produced that excellent Don't Shoot comp, which I'm right. sure we've also talked about during those we Divine have. Horseman episodes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, great comp, pre-Opal, Clay Allison is on it, Danny and Dusty is on it, which is Steve Wynn of Dream Syndicate and Dan Stewart of Green on Red, John Doe, Julie Christensen is on, is on it, which I'm pretty sure is they met during that session, if memory serves. Uh, the Romans are on it. He calls this song one of my few transcendentally happy love songs and was written the day after a particularly passionate weekend with Julie. It's classic Chris D. I'm the one who's going to make time stand still. All your troubles got to bend to my will. My house is burning with a fire in our bed. I'll feed the fire till I'm cold and dead. Oof. Chris just falls hard and I just love it, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He calls this in his book inferior to the original, and I again I have to disagree. They're both great, both versions. And then we close outside one with "Sister in the Flesh," music by Chris D. and John Napier, words by Chris D. He says for him this is a standout in his book. I agree. Uh, the band is just cooking. Danny Frankel just tearing shit up on the drums. I took a little trip down the drain. Now I want to come back. I want to be saved. I spit in the face of fate. It may be a little too late. Yeah, I thought you would like the way that this song opens with just like full bashing out chords. Oh, yeah. And then when it goes to the lyrics, it gets all palm muted and chuggy and they bring it down. I thought that was killer. Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. Stand out for sure. Flipping it over, I Got the Will by Otis Redding. Probably don't need to say much about Otis Redding. I'm sure everyone knows who he is. Generally considered one of the greatest soul singers in history. His nickname, after all, is the King of Soul. Unfortunately, he and several members of his band were killed in a plane crash on December 9th, 1967. Several albums were released after his death, including 1970's Tell the Truth, which is where this track uh, originally came from. I was listening to it this week, and it's just... So unbelievably good. Yeah. Um, of course, his version has a horn section and took Booker T on organ. Yeah, it doesn't have quite the same. Like, it's, you can tell that this is a cover. This one's got a bit more of a, I would say, you know, more of a garage, rocky type oh, yeah. of vibe to it, for sure, obviously. Um, but you can tell it's it's still faithful. When I was listening to that Otis Redding version, though, this week as well, it's just amazing how dynamic his vocals are and how easy he makes it sounds when he sings. Like there's no, no surprise why he's so revered. Just amazing. Yeah. This is a killer version. It kind of remind me of some of the nineties garage bands that were doing stuff like this, like the oblivions or the gories or something, you know, that kind of were almost doing soul songs and stuff. Rock and soul. Yeah. Uh, the guitars do that great job in that kind of ascending lick in the verses. Uh, great choice for the band. Uh, and although Chris is not really a, a soul singer, it, it's perfect for his voice, I thought. Mm -hmm. 
The next one is Sick Motherfucker. Music by Chris D. Uh, and John Napier. Words by Chris D. And I'm going to read a spiel in his book about this one because it's cool. Sick Motherfucker was an exercise in profane language and provocation. Linked by some facile, dare I say, poor rhymes, all referencing my marriage <laughs> and the world, and was modeled on a song by a female rocker I had heard over the PA in between movies on a double feature in the Venice Fox Theater in the mid-1970s. The song was delightfully obscene, but very catchy, well sung, and it rocked. There were lines like, you, you're a dirty cocksucker, a lame motherfucker, or some such. And the vocals sounded like, he's talking about the original here that he heard in this theater. And the vocals sounded like a cross between Patti Smith and Lottie Golden. But it was neither. To this day, I still don't know the name of that song or who sang it. Obviously, it, it existed on vinyl somewhere. Anyone who has a clue to what it was or can tell me definitively what early 1970s female rock singer would have dared to sing such a song before punk. Please contact me. And then he adds a, he adds on here. Lo and behold, my good friend Watt Doyle at New Texture has cleared up the mystery. Although I still don't know the singer's name, the song is called Can't You See and was composed by Charlie Kuva as part of his soundtrack for Robert Downey Sr.'s 1970 film Pound. The music was never released except as a promotional device to spread the word on the movie. Apparently, a handful of vinyl LPs were pressed up and sent out to prominent indie cinemas around the country to play before films when they had a captive audience in the house. So, this book was published in 2009. So, obviously, before Discogs and, and you know, YouTube was also only a few years old by that point. I couldn't find the song he's referencing to hear it, but I found this soundtrack EP on Discogs, and it lists a song called The Lame Motherfucker. <laughs> ah. Yeah. And it, it's it's weird. It looks like a label called Fortune Teller Records, who also have another Charlie Kuva soundtrack on their label, and a split between the Dirt Bombs and the Gories, actually. Possibly reissued it around 2006 as a 10-inch, it doesn't list a vocalist, but Robert Downey Sr., who directed and wrote this film, Pound, apparently wrote the lyrics. I guarantee you Chris knows more about this now than he did when he, he first wrote the book. Yeah. Um, this song is just spectacularly crude, and uh, the music is suitably greasy to match the lyrics as well. Yeah, I got to tell you, when you were describing that, I was like, oh, I wonder if... It sounds like something like Betty Davis might do almost, yeah. you know? Yep. Okay, then we've got another cover, Ghost. Um, as Chris mentions, this is a cover of the Boston band The Neats. Uh, I'm sure they've come up before on the show. We're both fans. This song is on their 1983 full-length self-titled debut on Ace of Hearts, written by guitarist-vocalist Eric Martin, who is one of the primary songwriters along with bassist-vocalist Jerry Channel classic song off a classic record and another super tasty cover choice by this project yeah it's amazing it's uh it's a cover of a neats song for the like the reason i like the neats yeah this is this is the type of neat song that got me into them for sure so so cool to have them cover it and do such a great version yeah 
And then we've got the last song, Pale Fire, I Still Burn Inside. Music credited credited to the whole band, lyrics by Chris. And Chris said in a spiel to me here, he goes, the long climactic song, Pale Fire, was partly improvisation on guitars between John and Chris through my direction of blending a more spooky spoken word, jive, blues, jazz, gothy feel on the verses a more hard rock feel on the choruses. You can kind of feel a mashup of Jim Morrison, Nick Cave, Patti Smith style influences on the vocal delivery on that song. It's over 10 minutes long. Great way to end the record. Uh, I can only imagine what this was like live. Scorcher. Yeah. Uh, scorcher for sure. Yeah. I sent a telegram to my uncle Jesus pledged in sickness and health. He knows I'm falling to pieces playing a new set of rules. Cheating's easy for fools. Great lyrics all the time from Chris. Oh, yeah, man. All the time. Yeah. I couldn't find too many reviews of the record, but I did did find one on all music, uncredited. Yeah, Yeah, I could find that one in Trouser Press. That's it. Yeah. It says, whether you love or hate I Pass for Human largely depends on whether you can ignore the tonal quality of Christie's voice. Though he actually sounds tuneful when he sings in his lower register, on many of his songs he adopts a high-pitched, strangled delivery. I mean, like, you don't have to be Ronnie James Dio to be a, a good singer. Said it before and I'll say it again. You know? Yep. Yep. Add to this quirk his grim, depressing, but often brilliant lyrics and you have an artist who is something of an acquired taste. Whatever his limitations as an artist, there is no question about his ability to put together a great band. Like every outfit that he ever performed with, Stone by Stone plays with authority and precision. The slow songs grind and burn, and the fast tracks combination of energetic rock and bleak songs is strangely compelling. Ghost is nothing short of riveting, a fantastic full band rave up with Christie's yowling, alienated vocals making a great contrast. The sole sunny number is the poppy meantime, a heartfelt pledge to stand with a loved one through thick and thin. Its presence on the album proves that Christie can write an absolute pop gem when he wants to and make it sound like he means every word. Yes, Chris, you do pass for human, for a human who articulates his darkest fears and feelings with remarkable, even frightening skill. Killer artwork, of course. The cover photo by Mimi Frankel, I assume, um, or sorry, not the artwork, the photo by Mimi. I assume she is connected to Danny somehow. Same last name, obviously. Paintings by Chris D. It almost seems like a photo and then Chris painted on top of the photo. That's what it seems like to me. That's exactly what happened. He told me, he goes, that mustache... He's talking about his. I was going to ask you, hey, Brant, is Chris rocking anything for you? (laughs) Rocking a a stash, Rocking a stash, yep. That mustache and soul patch lasted one year only, 1989. No (laughs) facial hair since then. He goes, I painted on a blown up black and white band photo with acrylic paint to get the front cover design. And then I I asked him who's who here. Um he goes um that's dean Steele and chris haskett standing in the back obviously that's chris with his hand on his face yeah left to right in front john napier wearing the beret i guess danny frankel and then christy 
It's Danny Frankel with the glasses. Uh, the back cover by Chris. The back cover of the CD is cool. It's it's different than this. It's a kind of a cut and paste job of Chris's Dirty Harry with some cut and paste quotes. Mm-hmm. And Chris has a word bubble, and he's saying "kiss yo ass goodbye." That's right. And there's dead wax kind of on one side of the LP. Did you see that? Side A only. It says for JC. Wonder who that is. I don't know. Juan Carlos? Juan <laughs> Carlos, right? No, that would be Julie Christensen for sure. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. Well, dude, all week I've been wanting to get to the ballot result, so let's do it. Ballot result. I feel like you have to pick this week because uh, we're both fans, but you're, I know, a bigger fan. I'm just going to say, for my money, uh, I definitely loved All I Have meantime and i definitely liked the uh the sister in the flesh that uh, that breakdown during the the verse i just love that yeah minor all i have meantime i pass for human sister in the flesh and ghost yeah oh you see you know like i maybe would have put ghost on there but i didn't want to put a cover on yeah let's do uh you want to do sister in the flesh yeah man Love that one. Yeah. All these songs are great. I hope people check this out. It is up on YouTube if you don't have it, the whole album. So that's good. People can at least hear it. It's awesome, though. And, you know, if Chris's voice is a barrier for you, just keep listening. Like, I, like I love it. I love his oh, voice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I, it's, it's, not even, it's not even something I think about. Yeah. I think this is, this is Chris D. This is how he sings. The lyrics are every single word is poetry. Oh, yeah. And total conviction, too, in his yeah. voice, you know? Yeah, for sure, man. Troubadour. Total troubadour. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Chris D for sending some stuff in, and uh, thanks to Chris Haskett. Total thrill having having Chris on the show. Oh, yeah. Me. Great stories, too. Yep. All around the world stories from Chris Haskett. Yep. Love it. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a chore lining it up. You know, he's he's in Australia, so not even the same day as where, where we are. But did you have to travel back in time yeah. to do the interview? <laughs> More or less, yeah. But he was oh, super okay. accommodating, so I really appreciate it. It was awesome having him on. Yeah, for sure. I got to tell you, like when I was a kid, I'm talking teenager, and I was buying these Rollins Band records. I never thought I'd have someone from those records like on a show that I'm doing, right? Yeah. Not not in a million years. Oh, for such, sure. Such a huge thrill. Yeah. All right, Ryan. What's next week? Next week, Brant, we're going back to another band that we're a big fan of. It's SST 248, the Screaming Trees Buzz Factory record. Yeah, and we've got a special guest, Ryan. Jack and Dino's going to be on the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.